welcome to the Off The Wire podcast. I am really pleased to have uh, a friend, a mentor, uh, a theologian, a church historian uh, with me, Dr. Michael Haken, who serves as, the, um, as a professor of church history and biblical spirituality, as well as the director of the Andrew Fuller Center at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Haken, uh, quickly became a friend of mine during my PhD studies at Southern Seminary, and he is the uh, person to blame who made me fall in love with uh, Augustine, as well as the Cappadocian Fathers who pushed me to, uh, to, to study the Gregories and Basil and uh, the life of Macrina, and I remember that very well, as well as um, uh, several other, other folks, Pseudo-Dionysius and all the, these fun things. And so, but it was in his class on uh, Augustine that I really began to see that what I was wanting to see within the church of a theology that uh, was for the church, uh, Michael gave me a glimpse of what that could look like, and that wasn't anything new. I wasn't doing anything new or didn't want to see, see anything happen new, uh, but that this has been something that's been on brothers and sisters' hearts uh, since the beginning of the church, that uh, theology that actually works, a theology that gets its hands dirty. And so uh, I'm really pleased to have uh, Michael on this uh, episode of, of Off the Wire, and I'm thankful thankful for you, Michael. And I want to find out, you are right now in Louisville, Kentucky, right? You said you just celebrated yes. Andrew Fuller's birthday. Is that what it is? Yeah, every year we have uh, an annual uh, kind of birthday party for Andrew Fuller. We actually have a cake uh, with Andrew Fuller's picture on it. Uh, and there's a restaurant in town called the Bristol. Uh, it's on uh, Bardstown. Yep. And uh, it's appropriate because the Bristol Baptist College was the only seminary in England at the time for Baptists when Fuller was living. So it's got an appropriate name. We, we should get about a dozen faculty, students. Uh, and uh, in some ways, it's an excuse just to have lunch together. Uh, but, uh, it, it was, it was an excellent time today. So, so within the Andrew Fuller center, what, what are you all like, are these, these are folks just at Southern or are they from different areas of the country or? No, they, they, uh, the Andrew Fuller center is based here at, uh, Southern. Um, it's really a, a vehicle by which we explore how to retrieve some of the riches of our Baptist heritage. And uh, it's named after Andrew Fuller, who probably is the most important Baptist theologian in the English Baptist tradition. And uh, he lays the foundation for William Carey's going to India. So he's a very important theologian, not simply for Baptists, but also for the global Christianity. Um, and he had a real vision for uh, the, the Catholicity and the global nature of the Christian faith. And a lot of his work is defense of the faith uh, from threats like the denial of the Trinity, the denial of the deity of Christ, uh, the rejection of the scriptures as the revealed uh, will of God. Uh, in other words, very, very basic issues. Um, and um, he deeply influenced by Jonathan Edwards. So he, he represents the best of a really kind of an ideal pastor theologian. He's a pastor. Um, and so he's a great figure to kind of name the center after. He is a man who is in touch with the, the core of Christianity. Um, he's using uh, the, the latest theological resources of the 18th century to address the Enlightenment. He's not fighting the battles of the 16th century. 
uh, or even the 17th century. You know, the reformers and the Puritans had their own theological battles they fought. He's fighting against the sort of inroads of the Enlightenment project, um, which we're still looking at uh, fighting. Which, which would be real quickly like what what would be some of those things that he's fighting against? Uh, the, yeah, the denial of denial of revelation, uh, the argument that God uh, did make the world, but uh, we can know Him best through science uh, and not through uh, revelation. The exaltation of human reason as omnicompetent for knowing truth, um, and then obviously the battle for the Trinity, which was heating up in the 18th century. Uh, who is Jesus? Those sort of questions. Um, and at the same time, though, he's a pastor, and he's doing this in a pastoral context. He's, he's always thinking about um, uh, the, the way in which Christianity shapes a life, bears fruit in a life. And one of his key arguments is that Christianity, as opposed to some of the other philosophical uh, alternatives in the 18th century, Christianity bears fruit that is a blessing to individual souls. It enables people to flourish as human beings and enables society to function well. Uh, whereas these other alternatives he predicted would lead to death. And he, he's right. We've, we, they, 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 you don't see it immediately in the 18th century, but you, you give it a 100, 150 years, and the sort of, the sort of uh, world that we've gone through in the 20th century, the horrors of the world wars, uh, the communism, uh, the Holocaust, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, those things are the fruit, really, to, to a large degree, of the Enlightenment, uh, where you you've you've taken God out of the picture and you're trying to build some sort of human utopia. And uh, Fuller 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 is is responding to these early early exaltation of human reason. And uh, so he's a, he's a, he's he's great in in so many ways. Uh, committed to mission, passionate about mission. And um, so we have this, uh, we, we do a number of things there. We, uh, uh, we have uh, two annual conferences. One is a large conference, usually a two, three day conference with speakers from all around the world. We have a small in-house thing we do in the spring. We're also sponsoring uh, the critical edition of the Andrew Fuller Works, which are being published by Walter de Greuter, a German publishing house based in Berlin and Boston. Um, we have postdocs available. Uh, we've had two or three postdocs. We've got one coming up where people come and will study here for six months, maybe on a sabbatical. Um, we're hoping to establish maybe something where a pastor who's got interest in maybe writing could come for a one-week, two-week period. Um, he'd have to get here under his own steam, but we would provide accommodation meals, uh, library resources, and even uh, uh, some mentoring uh, from a faculty member in the area that he might want to be interested in writing. So it's, um, uh, we've, God's blessed us richly, and it's been a fabulous venue, the Southern Campus. Southern has been very, very helpful in terms of uh, supporting the center, uh, and when the funds run low, as it were, uh, helping to finance the center. No, that's incredible. Um, is now if, if somebody wanted to do that, if somebody wanted to be involved in like that pastoral cohort you mentioned, would they just email you? Who? What would be the best way? Yes, to at this point, email me, uh, which is m haken m h a y k i n at sbts edu. Okay. And uh, we're in the process of trying to raise funding for that, and we probably need about five thousand a year to have maybe two or three men 
come for two week periods um, and uh, work on a manuscript, uh, popular, maybe something academic or an article um, uh, and have these resources uh, available. Wow. Okay. Okay. So again, they would just email you directly at mbacon at sbts.edu to be able to do that. And great. Well, good. Well, so you are, uh, you've already mentioned it a few times and it sounds like you're an unabashed uh, Baptist. (laughs) Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm uh, committed to Baptist uh, principles uh, at the core of which is a a vision of uh, congregationalism and and believers baptism by immersion. Uh, the congregationalism is is absolutely central. That the locus of authority in a in a local church is the congregation. Mm. So I would, yeah, I would, I would be committed to that. And I think um, uh, I was trained in an uh, an Anglican setting, uh, Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto, mm-hmm. which gave me a fabulous grounding in uh, classical uh, Christian Trinitarianism and Christology, and also gave me a deep appreciation. Uh, for the sort of liturgical uh, kind of approach to worship that has dominated uh, much of the past. Um, so I, in some ways I fall between two stools. Uh, I'm definitely committed to an evangelical vision of Christianity. Uh, ecclesiologically, I'm a Baptist, but I hope as a historian I've been able to cultivate a Catholic uh, vision of what Christianity is about. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you say Catholic, you're, you're talking about like the universal, the, the, yeah. 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 I mean, Catholicity, uh, I think one of the areas we as evangelicals have failed is that we've allowed that word to fall out of use. Uh, it's, it's sometimes it's been theological. There has been a, a large movement in Baptist circles, not as active today, but in the 19th century, which we call landmarkism or Baptist successionism, which denied the, the 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 idea that there is a universal church so it's not surprising that in that sort of world that catholicity would 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 not be an important uh element um but as christians as baptist christians um there there the church is much larger than simply baptists and um real real quick what 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 is to be gained within the landmarkist tradition because you know, you do start to see within our own culture a lot of tribalism. I mean, is that is are some of the same marks of tribalism and that the, the case in landmarkism? What what was to be gained by denying the Catholicity of the Church? I th- yeah, I think what what you find in the 19th century, Christianity in in America is really really strong. Uh, mm-hmm. One out of every four Americans by the 1850s was a Methodist, for example. Uh, the Baptists were growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, then you have various spin-offs of the Baptist movement, like uh, Alexander Campbell and uh, Barton Stone, um, with the uh, Disciples of Christ and the Christian movement. Um, and uh, probably, uh, I would think that uh, evangelical Christianity would have numbered 60 to 70 percent of the American population, uh, antebellum uh, and even postbellum. Uh, and so, in that sort of environment where you have a a culture that is saturated with Christianity, it's very easy to start to raise denominational barriers. Mm, mm. And the landmarkists basically denied the reality of any other church but Baptist churches. Uh, Presbyterian churches are not true churches, et cetera, et cetera. 
and uh, to some degree they had the, they had the they had the luxury of this sort of denominational infighting well uh, that's 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 what I, I find fascinating that you would only see people erecting barriers uh, to other denominations that would also call themselves Christians in the lap of luxury in in a place where you don't have to worry about getting your head chopped off anymore. You can now worry about uh, what mode or what you know what what is the most important preference. I mean, would would that be fair to say that a lot of these yeah. barriers are erected because of that because of the lack of persecution in some ways? Yeah, to some degree. I, I think that um, the, 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 there, were, there were no, there were, there were very few pressing realities in America in the 19th century that forced evangelicals to make common cause. Maybe the, 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 the issue of the abolition of slavery would have been one of them. That certainly would have been an ethical reason. Um, but it's very interesting that uh, in the 18th century, uh, where Christianity is uh, at a low point, uh, so for instance, after the American Revolution, uh, churches are, are, are deserted, mm. uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and then because you get of the war itself? Just because of the war yeah, itself? Yeah, part, partly because of the war, partly because pastors went off to fight, uh, and uh, they're gone for eight, you know, seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Churches, church buildings were requisitioned, definitely by the British. I don't think the Americans did this, but the British turned a lot of uh, meeting houses, for instance, in New England into, mm. into stables for their horses. Mm. And so the, 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 when the pastors came back after the, 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 the American Revolution, they found their churches in complete disarray. Um, so um, uh, then, then we have the Second Great Awakening, and... Um, the, uh, that, that's a very profound and deep movement. And uh, it's interesting, in the wake of that revival, you get the rise, a very strong rise of denominationalism. Mm. And you mm. get these Baptists, these landmark Baptists, denying the, 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 the terminology of church, even if, you know, Presbyterians who share with them basic evangelical mm. convictions regarding salvation, but they're they're denying that they're even churches, hmm. um, and I, I think that that is a is a is a movement that has its impetus in a context where, yeah, I mean, if you've got eighty percent of the seventy to eighty percent of the population are going to church, you can afford <laughs> to do those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, but we, and we find ourselves, I mean, in in a in a place as a as a as a as evangelicals where there's a lot of luxury. I mean, we're, we're divided over a lot of things, but there does seem to be a, a movement towards wanting to uh, embrace this ecumenism, but, but a theologically informed ecumenism. Can you speak to that? You mentioned that you're falling between two stools, between Anglicanism and, and Baptist uh, heritage. How, how do you put, bring those two things together that seem to be disparate type things? Well, Anglicanism, in terms of its understanding of worship, um, the importance of certain elements, uh, the Lord's Supper being a regular feature of Anglican worship. Um, I'm not alone in this as a Baptist. Uh, men like uh, Charles Spurgeon would have loved to have had the Lord's Table once a week. Um, Baptists have historically, because of various things in the 20th century, played down the table. And I think the table is very, very important. Um, and I think my Anglican training uh, would have given me that 
con conception. Um, the the way that we dismiss uh, a worship service, we should dismiss with a doxology or a benediction. Uh, Baptists, Baptists, to be honest, Baptists uh, in the 18th and 19th century became very casual about worship. Uh, it was uh, deepened by certain movements in the 20th century. And then post-1960s, because of the way in which uh, people of my generation expressed themselves culturally, that just further enhanced a very kind of, uh, you know, relaxed, uh, informal, free setting in worship. And um, uh, it, 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 it has certain problems inherent in it. For example, so uh, most Baptist churches today begin worship with, uh, with singing, uh, whether, it's, whether it would have been choruses in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or now Hillsong sort of stuff, or even the so-called traditional hymns that were used from between 1890 and 1950. Um, the problem is uh, in the Anglican worship, uh, you begin with a call to worship and then a confession of sin. And it's almost as if in, in our Baptist circles, we tend to think that by coming, we can come into God's presence and uh, we don't even have to talk about the fact that we've, we've spent a week living immersed in a world of sin and we're spiritually filthy. But that, but that, seems, so, that seems so dour. Why, why, why would you want to confess your sin? That seems so uh, not, not very friendly towards how God views us. Well, that's also, yeah, it's also part of the, the problem. I mean, we've got a therapeutic understanding of God. You know, uh, God is, uh, he is not offended or uh, upset by our sin. He winks at our sin. But the biblical understanding of, of, of God, which I think is enshrined in uh, some of the more liturgical traditions, uh, where there, are, there is a, a call to worship, a confession, a public confession of sin, and then a pronouncement of absolution based on biblical passages. If any, for instance, if any man confesses sin, he, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, the Bible takes very, very seriously the, the sinfulness of humanity. Uh, the whole of the uh, cultic elements of the law drive that home. Uh, but we've lost, we've lost that. And uh, so it's affected the way it's affected the shape of our worship. Uh, uh, classical Anglican worship based on the Book of Common Prayer retains that. Uh, I think we can learn some pointers from that. Um, and I find myself at times very frustrated by the, the, the extemporaneous nature of Baptist worship that is basically, it's left in the hands of, of various people who may not have a good grounding in biblical theology. You, you mean like just somebody that's up there leading the music and then yeah. just feels like we need to go this direction or wants, yeah. or wants to say something that may, not be, may or may not be theologically rooted? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, we, we, we go in waves. So Hillsong stuff, you know, the latest stuff that comes out, well, we, we got to sing this. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether you're in a Baptist church in southern Ontario, where I, I live, or whether it's in uh, Greenville, where you're living, or in Louisville, where I teach. Uh, because of the nature of the social media, et cetera, et cetera, uh, th this stuff is pervasive. 
Mm. And people want to be in touch with the latest thing, etc. And uh, so worship leaders need a solid grounding in theology. So you, you mentioned um, Andrew Fuller earlier with the English Baptists, and then we've talked about American Baptists really highlighting the local church autonomy, even the individual autonomy of the, of the believer. Um, can you, why did you make the distinction with English Baptists? Are there other, are there like other Baptist traditions that aren't as, because those are the ones that are most popular. Uh, that, that yeah, English Baptists never have the landmark. The landmark movement really never makes it in England. Um, they they don't wrestle with the problem of is there such a thing as the universal church? Mm. Mm. And um, because the dominant structure in England, apart from the Baptists in the 18th century, would be Methodism and the Anglican Church. Mm. Mm. The Anglican Church is is probably during the mid and 19th century, probably 50 to 60, well, probably about 50% of the population were going to an Anglican church. Hmm. Um, and so many of the Baptist leaders like Andrew Fuller, like um, uh, William Carey, were not, uh, uh, they didn't have any problems working with uh, Anglican evangelicals hmm. like William Wilberforce, John Newton, uh, Henry Venn, uh, Charles Simeon, and these sort of men who had a very different vision of how the church worked. Uh, it was an Episcopal structure, infant baptism, uh, liturgical worship, but uh, that, sort of, uh, that sort of working relationship was very healthy. Mm. Um, Fuller and Carey were never ashamed of being Baptist, but it was said of both of them, they loved all who loved the Lord Jesus. Yeah. Not only that, but they prayed for them. They prayed with them. They sometimes preached in their pulpits. And uh, in, in, in America in the 19th century, uh, you basically have two major movements. You've got the Baptist and Methodist. Uh, the Baptist is broadly Calvinistic. The Methodist is broadly Arminian. And those two worlds don't, they don't, they collide, they fight, but they don't often cooperate together maybe in the issue of the abolition of slavery. Um, and so Baptist, Bap, the development of Baptists in the 19th century in America is, um, it's not exposed to other significant, uh, it's not as exposed to other significant Christian traditions as Baptists in England. So it sounds like American Baptists were, were birthed out of like a, a pragmatism from the Second Great Awakening because you have all these um, the, the, the revivalism of, of, you know, doing itinerant preaching, tent revivals, those kind of things. Would that be, would that be fair? And is that yeah. how we found the landscape as it is with pragmatism and, and kind of eschewing uh, some of that, that heritage of a, a liturgy? Would, would that be fair? Or is that too broad of a brushstroke? Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, uh, Anglicanism never makes it big in America. Um, and Even with Whitfield? No, Whitfield, Whitfield's, he's, he is an Anglican, but he's not, he's not interested in denominational worship. Mm. Mm. Uh, he, he's just interested in preaching the gospel mm. wherever anybody gives him a pulpit. <laughs> but on one occasion, if the Pope, Pope gave him the Vatican, he'd go preach there. Mm. Um, um, he really is. He's, in some ways, he's, he, Billy Graham is a, is a fabulous you know, kind of heir to, to Whitfield. Not so much theologically, but definitely in terms of 
um, the actual praxis of ministry, uh, they're both they're both soul winners. Mm. And uh, so Whitfield would not be, he, he's not, he, he doesn't encourage people to, to uh, join uh, this church, that church, or join the Anken church. Um, very similar to, to Billy Graham in that regard. Mm. Um, and did he also th- get, did he get as much flack as Billy Graham did um, for, for that ecumenical bent? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he ran into major problems in Scotland with the Presbyterians. Uh, for whom uh, church order was absolutely vital, um, and uh, to 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 give them uh, credit, uh, to some degree, uh, he he was wrong. He he just he didn't think church order was important. He didn't and think what was what was important. I'm sorry. He didn't think church order was important. He didn't mm. think denominational structures were important. Mm. Is um, there a way to think that they are important? Like because we're trying to carve out this this via media this is this middle way it sounds like to be able to say they're important like i'm i'm a baptist but i also will be willing to preach in an anglican church like help help walk through that because you know we still have two ends of the spectrum we have some that <clears throat> will say you know let's just forget all of our differences and you love jesus i love jesus and i you know yeah i worship at that church over there but it's not that important uh, as opposed to the other end of the spectrum that says, um, no, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Baptist. That's how I identify myself as a Christian or I am a Methodist or what, what have you. I'll, I'll identify my Christianity with my denomination, but then it sounds like there's this third way trying to say, no, I'm, I'm going to wholeheartedly say I, I am a committed Baptist. Um, but I am happy to pray with pray for, other churches and for the gospel. So can you help walk us through what, what is it that, that causes folks on either end of that spectrum to, to, to kind of go on either side of the ditch? Um, some of its personality, I think, I think the fact that you get some people who don't really care like Whitfield about denominational structure, um, his, he loved people and, um, Hmm. he, uh, he didn't want to see any barriers to the gospel. And uh, so some of it's driven by theological conviction, some of it's personality. Hmm. Um, the, the Reformation was about, uh, obviously, about how a person is saved, but it was also about how a person should worship. Hmm. Hmm. And so worship was very, very important to the, uh, to the Reformers, to the Puritans, all of whom are forebears of, of evangelicals. Hmm. And... Um, uh, 18th century evangelicals were deeply concerned as well about worship. But in the 19th century, you do have this rise of pragmatism. Mm. You have um, kind of an, uh, in America, you have a, um, um, a democratization, to use the word of Harry Stout, the historian. You have a democratization of American evangelicalism so that the man in the pew, he's got as good opinion as the guy who's preaching. Doesn't matter if that guy, the guy who's preaching, has formal theological education. He has spent his life studying the scriptures. Uh, I've got as much as much right to my opinion as anybody because uh, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. I'm indwelt by the Spirit. Um, it's interesting how that though fits with American political life, hmm. with uh, the presidency, say, of an Andrew Jackson, backwoodsman from Tennessee. If he could become president, anybody can become president. Mm-hmm. 
and you find this being replicated in the life of the church alongside what has always been, I think, uh, well, definitely since the 19th century, uh, a pragmatism in American life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can do it. Yeah, we, but we can, get, we, we can get this done. But you, you said a moment ago that you are a, a committed con- like congregationalism, that, that authority resides in congregation. So how, how do you reckon that with not the, the, the democratization that you're talking about to, you know, to where everybody has a voice? Well, that's true. So kind of walk us through that, that there's not a discrepancy in your... Well, the congregationalism, uh, again, you, 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 my, my congregationalism goes back to the Puritans, uh, where there is an emphasis on community. And uh, American, uh, the American kind of American project of democratization uh, is very much centered on, very, very shaped by the rise of, of uh, Western individualism. Mm. And uh, so my congregationalism is that the congregation gathers together, prays about an issue, makes a, uh, makes a decision as a body of believers in which every believer should have a voice to be able to, to speak into that issue. Um, but also, I think I take, uh, I don't think anybody who studies the scriptures can deny the importance of leadership in the body. And so the, the challenge for congregations myself is to find a, a balance between uh, leaders, uh, what role do leaders play, elders play, and what role does the congregation play? That's the, the, the challenge. Hmm. Um, and I think uh, the 19th century uh, undermined to some degree ministerial leadership. And uh, so Baptist business, Baptist church meetings become less about prayer <laughs> yeah. and seeking the common mind of God, becoming battles mm. within local Baptist churches between various factions. And that is that, is that relate to uh, a lack of a commitment to a regenerate church membership as well? I mean, would you see that yeah. as playing, playing yeah. a major role in it, that you have a lot of people that aren't believers who are voting on the color of the carpet? Yep. Yeah, that's that's definitely also happening. There is a decline in church discipline in the 19th century, uh, and when you start baptizing uh, four and five years olds, uh, start I don't know how common that is in that period. By the 20th century, it's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's also going to be problematic because mm-hmm. if I'm baptized at four years old, you know, am I really regenerate? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not denying that God can regenerate four and five year olds. I mean, in fact, that's our, that's our prayer that our children would come to faith in Christ at a young age. So they don't go through the challenges that uh, some, you know, a lot of people face in their teen years and twenties. Um, but having said that, uh, you, you just can't make that a norm mm-hmm. uh, where a, a child at four prays to receive Jesus while they're now a Christian. Um, because all, all too frequently that's, I'd say, a childish, and I'm not using that word pejoratively, yeah, yeah. a childish response to what their parents mm-hmm. are teaching them. Mm-hmm. And is, is it grounded in the heart? And if that person is now regarded as, a, as, a, as part of the body of Christ, that local body of Christ, um, they can live on that assumption as long as they don't live an ungodly life externally. They can assume that they're a Christian. Others can assume they're a Christian. Um, and it's not surprising that you get some of the, the problems uh, in uh, congregational life of Baptists um, in that regard, say, in the 20th century. 
I want, I want to come back to that in a moment, just as it relates to um, the indictment that a lot of my friends who are, uh, you know, in Presbyterian or, or um, Anglican traditions where they say, well, we don't, y- y'all treat your kids like they're devil children or something, you know, like they're, they're not able. So I want to, I want to revisit that in a moment, but uh, I would like to ask about as it relates to, uh, hold on, as it relates to leadership itself, because how do you, how do you recommend that pastors who are committed to congregationalism, but also uh, affirming that leadership is important, how do you get around a cult of personality that we see in a lot of evangelical circles that, oh, I, I go to so-and-so's church, or I go to so, you know, and, and having the latest evangelical celebrity, um, and I'm not indicting those, those guys that, that are evangelical celebrities. I'm just saying that there's a, there's a human tendency to want to exalt or, or elevate certain leaders, um, and then this call to also be humble, and then there's also this call uh, within the Bible that we see of having the congregation praying over a matter, uh, being told about a matter and excommunicating on a matter. So how, how do you see those things reconciled, having a, a robust commitment to leadership and yet also a robust commitment to uh, opinions of the congregation matter? Yeah, I, th- I, I, I think getting the balance is never easy. Um, uh, a lot depends on the quality of the congregation uh, in terms of um, are they Bible reading, uh, praying people, are they serious about the Christian life? Um, far too many uh, evangelical congregations have people in them who are, they're born again, but uh, over the course of time, the kingdom of God is no longer their central horizon. Um, and that, therefore, is going to affect the, the quality of church life. And especially if you've got a congregational model, it's going to affect the quality of that church life. That's a problem. What would you say, what, what horizon is, is, is exchanged for that kingdom of God horizon? Uh, the horizon of culture. Hmm. Being relevant, or is that what you mean? Uh, or, or you whether, whether, it's, whether it's being relevant or what. Uh, when people are not intentionally seeking to form a culture that is grounded in the ethos of the New Testament, they'll fall back on their default culture. Mm. Their okay. default culture in the southern United States is going to be this uh, civic religion, um, you know, where you know uh, God is honored with the with, with in words, but really is not being honored in life. Uh, in the West Coast, it's going to be different. Um, in an immigrant community, uh, it'll be whatever that culture of that immigrant community was. I mean, people always form a culture, and there has to be this intentionality that it's going to be a kingdom of God culture that is grounded in the ethos and ethics of the New Testament. But the other problem is, the, is, is leadership. Hmm. Hmm. So you need, you need leaders who see themselves as, as servants, mm. as shepherds, mm. um, who are there to love the flock. That, that's, their, that's their primary calling. Uh, okay. That doesn't mean, therefore, that they, they wink at all the problems because that's not love. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't do that with a child. Um, uh, we, I, when my wife and I were first married, we had a very close friend's uh, 
who for some bizarre reason thought that saying no to their son at one child at a time was inhibiting his growth and creativity. Well, the guy was a little monster. <laughs> uh, I remember him coming, he came over to our house and he was swinging on the, uh, on the, uh, the curtains, you know, jumping on the curtains and swinging on them. And, uh, and the mother's trying to get him off without saying, don't do that. Uh, at one point, he wanders into the kitchen, comes back with an electric knife. <laughs> and again, the mother's trying to, you know, how do you get, how do you, how do you tell the boy to put that down? No, uh, would would little Johnny like to have this bear? No, I don't want the bear. I want the knife. You know, and it was it was a zoo. And um, uh, that that's not so. It's not love simply yeah. to never say no. Yeah. So we, but we, so we need, but we need leaders who love their flock, who see themselves as shepherding the flock. They're not, they're not there to dominate the flock, make a name for themselves, mm -hmm. build some sort of celebrity uh, status, mm -hmm. uh, get mm -hmm. a following on Facebook or sermonaudio.com or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, 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 you need to be careful. The congregation needs to be careful about who they put into leadership. The congregation though also needs to be needs to be exhorted by those who they put into leadership to be uh, a New Testament forming uh, community uh, based mm. on New Testament ethos, ethics. Um, and those who are leaders, need, they need to lead. They, they need to be given the freedom by the congregation uh, to preach as the Lord leads them in the exposition of scripture. Uh, uh, and I think a congregation will follow a leader uh, if they know he he loves them, you, <laughs> there there might be somebody listening who's a, who's a pastor of a church, and I don't I think the answer that most pastors would give, or most or or seminarians, you see this a lot in seminarians too, right? That I'm not proud, uh, and yet um, there is this insipid type pride that critiques everyone but never critiques the self. If, if somebody's listening to this, who's a pastor, are there certain kind of questions they can ask themselves that, that, that you could suggest that they ask themselves to kind of say, yeah, you're, you're seeking a name for yourself or you've imbibed a lot of the culture that you think that you haven't imbibed that you're, 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 you are proud. <laughs> uh, what, what, are there certain questions that, that somebody could ask themselves to, to kind of dissect? Yeah, pretty basic the question is this, when you're with people, do you normally ask them questions? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dissect that a little bit. Help us. Well, uh, you know, I don't know how many pastors I've been with. And uh, I've, I've actually done this. It's not, and it's naughty. I, I've, I've done a little experiment two or three times. I, I th I've said to myself, okay, I'm not going to say anything on, on, Till he asks me a question and just see how long. <laughs> how long did you, were you quiet? <laughs> uh, there was one guy, it was nearly 20 minutes. Wow. Before he asked you a question. Yeah. Yeah. And then he really didn't, he really wasn't asking me a question. Mm. Mm. Uh, you, if you see the Lord Jesus, he's constantly mm. asking people questions. Wow. That's, that's good. Yeah. So I think, I think uh, that, that is, that's serious. I mean, that, that, huh. that tells me, but it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a problem for pastors particularly because we speak. Hmm. Those in theological leadership speak a lot. 
Mm. Uh, I, in my case, I'm lecturing. In pastor's cases, they're preaching. But uh, just ask yourself, do you honestly listen to others? Mm. Do you give them space and time to speak into your life? Mm. Um, and and I, I, I fear that far too many men, and I, I'm not saying it's a majority, but far too many who are shepherds, basically they like to hear themselves speak. Mm. They like, and, and, they, and they have an opinion on every matter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it, it's true of theological professors too. Mm. Even more so sometimes because theological professors, you normally have an expertise. Mm. And um, it's very disturbing to me to be basically subjected to a 15, 20-minute, uh, um, huh. for lack of a better word, rant. Wow. About this professor's latest area of expertise. <clears throat> <clears throat> which I don't really know much about. And he's really not engaging me in a conversation. It's a mm. monologue. Mm. And I'm just there as a sounding you're, board. And yeah, you're an accessory. Yeah. And I think, that, I think that's a very telling, it's a small thing, but I think it's very telling. Because I think it probably indicates the question, ask the question, are you really interested in people? Mm. If you're interested in people, you'll be asking questions about their life, uh, where they are thinking. I don't think you can mentor a person one-on-one uh, -on -one if you're not asking questions mm. trying to find out okay so where are they where are they at in their thinking now etc etc yeah so i think that's one that's a probably a very key area uh for a pastor to determine um am i is is my is my life dominated by my my own self mm. hmm. that's really good that's really good. <laughs> that, that's a good enough question, I think, to, to really, because it's, it's objective, because you can say, oh, I didn't ask someone a question at all, uh, as opposed to, you know, because if we try to dissect our own heart, it's so subjective, we'll find, and we know what we should be saying and what we should be feeling, and there's, there's incongruency there, but if we can just say, when was the last time I genuinely asked a question because I cared, and I actually could remember the answer <laughs> to the question? Right. So that's that's one area. The other area, I think, is how do you deal with people who are working so-called for you? Mm. So secretaries, mm. Mm. you know, assistants. Um, how do you treat them? You and, mean, do, you, uh, do I treat them as just people that are supposed to serve me? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, and I won't mention the person's name. He, he's with the Lord now. He's a... Uh, he was one of the most prominent evangelical leaders in America and uh, built a huge church, mega church. <clears throat> and uh, he had a, he had a, uh, it was a radio program. So similar to this. And I had written a book on an evangelical leader from the past. He wanted to interview me on him. And I arrived, I arrived at his office about 20 minutes early. And uh, he asked me to wait and, um, to hang around while he uh, uh, evaluated a film that had been taken off him that was going to be promotional for his, the ministry that he was involved in. And it was like a 10-minute kind of thing. And uh, I watched the way he spoke to those who were helping him and serving in under him. And basically, I pretty quickly sized it up that if he told them to jump, they'd ask how high mm. and it was brutal. Mm. Mm. And I just, 
I, I, I prayed after that, please, Lord, l- let me never get to the point mm-hmm. of just running roughshod over other human beings who are your, who are your children, because mm-hmm. my ministry is important. And there is, well, they're, they're, they're to, they're to help me. Mm-hmm. It was, it was horrible. Mm-hmm. And God, God bless that man. I know he did, but the question then would be how much more blessing could he have been? Hmm. And uh, I, I basically, I, I, it was very authoritarian, just the whole hmm. way he ran his ministry. Uh, it was a glimpse that uh, behind the scenes. Hmm. And uh, I fear that far too many pastors, especially successful pastors, see fall into that 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 kind of uh, trap. And what, why why do you think that is? I mean, what? What what is it? Well, I mean, you 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 start to believe your own publicity. <clears throat> and, when and, I when I when I when I was hired at Southern, uh, somebody uh, who I don't know uh, on Facebook uh, said, uh, uh, "Oh, it's it's a real shame. Haken's leaving Canada. We we need we we need we need you know that sort of voice here." And somebody else. I've never forgotten this. A woman said, oh, I heard him once. He wasn't that great. <laughs> and we need that. Yeah. We just need that to bring mm. us down to size. <clears throat> and I've never forgotten that. Mm. And I remember that on a regular basis just to say, okay. Mm. You're not that great. <laughs> no, no yeah. it's by grace. Yeah. And yeah. God, we, we pray that God raises up remarkable leaders. And we, mm-hmm. we, we have been blessed in our generation by a significant number of remarkable men. Hmm. Yeah. But, oh, that they might not believe their own publicity and that they might treat those around them. I, the one example I think that counteracts all that is uh, uh, John Piper. And there is a, there is a, there is a genuine humility that exudes from his, not only his public ministry, but from his private ministry, his private interaction with people. I've, I've met him on one, I met him on one occasion. I've met him a, a couple of times, but it was one occasion I had dinner with him. And it was, it was very revealing in terms of the humility that characterized his life. Mm. And, uh, but I fear that because the nature of our culture, uh, the way it, lionizes celebrities uh i mean americans need an aristocratic elite we don't have dukes and duchesses like the english did and the monarchy and so we've got film stars and uh sports stars and in evangelical culture we all we both and anybody listening to this knows the names of the big the big the big men uh, in our circuit Mm. and it's all too easy all too easy for these men to fall into the trap, I think, of, mm. of seeing themselves as more than they actually are. Mm. And um, so that's, that, that's, a, that's a danger for leadership. Um, and um, leaders need to have people who can speak into their lives and honestly say, you know, I, I just that's think great. you're wrong. Yeah, 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 that's great. And you need to be able to listen to that. Yeah. And on the other hand, congregations, when they call a man to be a pastor, they're calling him to lead them. And they need, they need to allow him the freedom to, to speak into their lives and to open up the scriptures. And uh, if they're calling him 
to be their leader. He has to have a vision. They need to get on board with that vision. Um, but it has to, again, the, the balance is tenuous. When congregationalism works, it's brilliant. When it doesn't work, it's complete anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, on, on another uh, note, um, and, I, and I mentioned this a moment ago, the, the indictment a lot of times is because we believe as Baptists that, that it's reserved for those who have been converted. Um, there's an indictment against uh, those that believe such things that, well, you treat your kids as though they're heathen or that they are, you know, well, we're, we're covenantalists, so therefore we, we treat our kids uh, as though they are Christians already. Can, how, how ought someone who um, does believe in, you know, believer's baptism, how, do, how are they supposed to treat their kids even though they don't believe that they're Christians yet? but they're trying to shepherd them towards that. How, how, how do you respond to, to folks that would say, say that, which, I, which I, obviously is a straw man argument, but at the same time, it's a, it's a popular held belief. Uh, if you, if you hold to, to conversion pre- prerequisite to baptism. Yeah, I think um, on the one hand, um, uh, pedo there are, there are evangelical pedo Baptists who obviously, uh, uh, believe in the baptism of a child and the baptism then w- a, an infant, which is different from the early church. The early church baptized children, but infant baptism didn't become the norm until the fifth and sixth century. So there's a difference there. Is, difference it, between, between is that in Everett Ferguson's text? Is that, is that where you're, is that? Yeah, Everett Ferguson, um, J.P. Lau, and I think it's Saunders uh, wrote a book. They're both Dutch theologians on uh, baptism in the early church. Um, David Wright, who was a Presbyterian uh, uh, historian, um, he's got a little book, uh, What Has Infant Baptism Done to the Church? Hmm. Um, but be that as it may, um, evangelical uh, pedobaptists, uh, recognize the vital necessity of conversion. Mm-hmm. Then the question is: mm-hmm. so then the the baptism of the child of the child or the infant then becomes a sign that the child must embrace later in life as an inward reality. But that strikes me that that separation of sign, symbol, seal, whatever, uh, from the inward reality is a product of the medieval period. Mm. Uh, where because of the belief in um, uh, baptismal regeneration, you baptize the baby right at uh, eight, eight or 10 days old because of the fear of infant mortality. And if the child wasn't baptized, it would go to hell. Uh, so you baptize the baby. And then later at confirmation, the child confirms their faith that receives this spirit. That's why the Bishop would lay hands on the child. Well, that's just a very mixed up theology. And um, uh, evangelical pedobaptists reject the idea of baptism and regeneration, but they're still dealing with that division. The New Testament, I don't think the New Testament sees any lengthy temporal division between uh, conversion and baptism. So it's, it's, I think you've got a problem, uh, problem there. Also, if, if the child is being baptized, baptism is the doorway into the church. I think that's a New Testament understanding. Then the child should be able to participate 
in all of the feasts of the church, which in the New Testament is the Lord's Supper. So it, it, I know that most of my evangelical paedo-baptist friends are anti-paedo communion mm -hmm. but i'm not sure theologically it makes any sense mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to be anti-paedo communion mm -hmm. and then interestingly enough and i think this is where the paedo-baptist position finds its flaw uh prior to the civil war you obviously had in the south uh slaveholding paedo-baptists who were evangelical if and that they did. They took circumcision in the Old Testament as a model so that uh, baptism in the New Testament replaces circumcision in the Old Testament. Circumcision in the Old Testament, when the promise is given to Abraham, he's not only to circumcise his children, his male children, he's also to circumcise his servants. So what happens when you have a Christian master? I'm not, I'm not here talking about the ethics yeah, yeah, of yeah, slave yeah. owning. You're just talking about the consistency of the logic. Yeah. A Christian master of antebellum should not only baptize his children, he needs to baptize all of his slaves. Um, and I, th I think that – that, and uh, it's very interesting that there were, there were debates, which we've long forgotten, among antebellum uh, Presbyterians and evangelical pedo baptists about the rightness or wrongness – of baptizing one's slaves. Hmm. But if you're, if you're following the model, circumcision, Old Testament, baptism, New Testament, I, I, I can't see any way out of, out of that dilemma. Hmm. Yeah. But baptism, circumcision in the Old Testament, the parallel in the New Testament is not baptism. It's a circumcision of the heart. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's good. Yeah, so... So as someone is trying to raise their child who has not yet confessed okay. their sin, uh, how how ought they, they to treat them? I mean, and, and and not do so in a in a disingenuous way. That that you can can we teach our kids Jesus loves me this I know or or I'm washed by the blood or you know these the different songs? Can they sing these songs? Or we should say no 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 you can't pray because you aren't a Christian yet or you can't sing this song about being born again you know, because you're not a Christian. So how, how do you walk a parent through that? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I probably, I think to answer that, I probably would need some time lest I answer it in a way that I would probably regret later. Was <laughs> it was a nuance later. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when we were raising our children, uh, we prayed for their salvation. We mm -hmm. encouraged them to put their faith in Christ. Um, we took them to church. We expected them to go to church. Um, I never asked my children to pray. Mm -hmm. And I never asked my children to sing those songs. If they, if they did, would, would you, did you pull your hair out or what, what happened? Like, I don't, they, re I don't remember. No, I don't remember pulling my hair out. Um, and I didn't pull my hair out. This just, this is genetics. That's why yeah. I'm <laughs> Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, I can, I mean, if, if a child is not in Christ, then, well, there is a sense. Yeah. I mean, I, again, from, okay. So the, the, 
to answer, and I'm thinking on my feet here. Yeah, yeah. So the answer this, is not, this is not one of the questions. <laughs> this is yeah. just where we went. Jesus, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So, does Jesus love sinners? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus loves all of humanity. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Fullerite theologically, and Fuller embraced the, the, the understanding of the atonement from the Synod of Dort, that Christ's death was sufficient for all, for all humanity and efficacious for those who believe. Mm -hmm. So does Jesus love the wicked? Well, the hyper-Calvinist answered, no, he does not love the wicked. Mm. But that, that, that runs counter, I think, to the New Testament. Where there is a there is a love that God has for all of His creation. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the question then is, what? <laughs> and the, the the song doesn't answer it. What mm -hmm. does it mean when it says Jesus loves me? This mm -hmm. I know. Mm -hmm. Is that is that talking about the electing love that secures the salvation of that individual, or is that talking about the common grace love, and that Jesus did Jesus's death is sufficient for all, if God had so intended it. Mm -hmm. So those questions aren't even answered in the song. Yeah, so yeah. we didn't we didn't have our children sing Jesus loves me this I know, but I I don't think it would be illegitimate for a parent if they understood that there is a sense in which Jesus loves all mm -hmm. all human beings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I I I think you could have your children say sing that. Yeah. Um, we didn't have our children pray. We didn't teach them. Uh, specific prayers to pray. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, would you have done that over, or would you still would you still hold that line? The only thing I would have done differently is I would have prayed more for my children's conversion. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've asked my daughter to forgive me on this. Uh, there were probably half a dozen times. Uh, Two or three I can remember very specifically where I lost my temper about things that she was doing as a teenager. And uh, upon reflection, I wish I hadn't done that. Mm. I got very angry that she was not listening to the counsel of her parents and yelled at her mm. on at least two occasions I can remember. And then one time we were in a car, I was driving and we were talking about her life and, and uh, the li things that she was doing as a teenager. And I, I said, well, I'm not letting you out of the car until you listen to everything I want to say. And I took her on this ride for about an hour, just driving around and that, that wasn't right. Mm. And I've, I've actually asked her to forgive me mm. Uh, mm. for uh, not always have been the loving parent I should have been. Mm -hmm. And um, so if I had to do it again, no, I, I wouldn't uh, lead them in praying for things that I, I didn't feel that they could have made at the time. Mm -hmm. Although my daughter made a profession of faith very mm -hmm. early, and mm -hmm. uh, but she was never baptized um, because I wanted to wait until I saw that there was mm -hmm. until she was at an age where I thought she knew what she was saying. And by the time she was 16, uh, she really was walking away from the Lord. Mm. I'd love to uh, do a follow-up podcast at some point where we can talk in more detail about that because I think that that could really help a lot of people as they try to think through. And I, I feel really convicted because I think I've yelled at my kids more than a couple times and <laughs> and have apologized to them on numerous occasions. But 
think it'd be great to kind of dissect that some more um, to, to think through that. Cause, cause you yourself were not raised in a Christian home, right? You, you came to faith much later in life than your daughter. Uh, and can, can you walk us through how you, how you came to faith and then what it is particularly that led you in your journey towards church history, particularly? Yeah, I was, I was raised Irish Catholic. And uh, so the rudiments okay. of Christianity were there. Um, my mother was, uh, her, her granny, my great grandmother was a Irish Catholic convert from Scottish Presbyterianism. Mm-hmm. She had come over to Ireland to work in one of the great Anglo-Irish homes near Dublin in the, probably around 1900, and had fallen in love with a gardener, um, uh, Hen Fields, Henry Fields, and uh, he was a Catholic. And against my great, uh, great grandfather's wishes, she went ahead and married him Mm. and her family disowned her. Wow. And it pushed her deep into Roman Catholicism. She was a, she was the, she lived to 96. Um, uh, She attributed that to having had, having a bottle of Guinness every day. (laughs) (laughs) And she was the matriarch. uh, She was the Catholic matriarch of my mother's family. Wow. And she dominated uh, their lives. Uh, she moved over to England. I remembered her. The one, one memory I have very sharply of her when I was being taken to school at four, I didn't want to go to school. And uh, she, I remember telling my mom, uh, uh, listen to the boy. Don't, you know, don't, don't force him to school. I mean, <laughs> you like to agree great then. <laughs> yeah. When you say um, disowned, like they did not talk to her? I mean, they said no, you no, cannot they, come yeah, here they, anymore. They, they, they cut her off. Uh, they wow. were strong Presbyterians. Uh, wow. She lost um, three, I'm not sure, three of four of her brothers in the First World War. Wow. Who died in the trenches. Wow. And um, so she, uh, she had a major influence on my mom. Mm. My granny lived in a two-room home with outdoor uh, toilet, uh, eight children, uh, one bedroom. Mm. And so my great granny, uh, lived just down the road. And so at a certain age, when my mother was around 12, she went to live with my great grand. Okay. And then when she left, uh, there at the age of 16 to go to England to work in Cadbury's chocolate factory, uh, one of her brothers, uh, George, uh, their last name was O'Gorman. Uh, George O'Gorman went to live with my, my, my great grand too. Hmm. And my, my, my mother and George were like two peas in a pod. They were very, very similar, uh, very outgoing, enormously extroverted, um, and adventurous, very hmm. adventurous. And, uh, my great granny gave them that, um, she had left home in yeah. Scotland, come to Ireland. Yeah. Uh, she was a free spirit. She did her own course. <laughs> And so um, I was raised in a very solid Irish Catholic home. My father, Muslim background, Kurdish. Mm. When he married my mom, he embraced Catholicism mm. with a vengeance. Mm. Um, and was he uh, nominally was he nominally a Muslim or was he yeah, a committed? Okay. No, it was a nominal Islam, and um, he uh, uh, basically he the culture he gave us nothing of his culture. Mm. So he, if you met him, he's lived, still living. You'd think he had an, he was born in England. He has a pure English accent. Is that on and purpose or just de facto? Yes. I mean, okay. No, no. He, he westernized himself completely. Why is that? What, what was the, 
Um, I, he experienced racism in okay. uh, Iraq. Uh, the okay. Kurds were despised by the Arabs. Yeah. And he experienced racism in England. Mm. As, uh, and then when we came to Canada, we anglicized our name. Uh, mm. I, my birth name is uh, Azad Michael Anthony Hakim. Mm. And so my dad anglicized our name. I would experienced, you know, racist slurs in England, etc. Mm. So um, raised Catholic. We come to Canada in the late 60s. Um, and I got caught up in all of the radical left. I was a committed Marxist, uh, mm. kind of Che Guevara, Mousy Tongue style revolution. Mm. Um, Leon Trotsky. Is it just because that's what your friends were or was there a, a philosophical no. commitment that you had? No, there was a philosophical commitment. It wasn't, my, but my friends, um, so a lot of my friends were into hard drugs, LSD, heroin. Um, I never did those, but I, I did do things like marijuana, hashish. And for me, it was a political act of rebellion against mm -hmm. an oppressive state. Mm -hmm. It was very disturbing to me when I found out that most of my friends were doing drugs uh, for entertainment. Mm -hmm. huh. And uh, to me, that just fell, that fell into the line with their parents who drank for it for so, escapism or entertainment. And, and so some of that rebellion, it was that um, informed by the racism that you experienced? Yeah, I think so. I, okay. I felt, I didn't feel part of, I felt, I felt excluded to some yeah. degree from English society. I had yeah. black hair, uh, brown eyes. Um, I didn't feel I fit in. Mm. When I came to Canada, I didn't feel I fit in because I had an English accent. Um, mm. And, uh, and then also my relationship with my dad during my teen years was difficult. Mm. Um, I now appreciate what he was doing. Mm -hmm. He was trying to give us a better life. Um, I saw him as distant. Mm. Um, and, uh, so some of my Marxism was an acting out of my mm. rebellious feelings mm. about my father. Mm. But mm. I, um, I met a young woman uh, who became my wife, Allison, at a pizza parlor in the summer of 1973, and uh, she went to church. By that time, I had become disenchanted with Marxism. Typical of my generation, I became a searcher after spirituality. Uh, typical of my generation, sorry? What, disenchanted why? What, did, did you start to kind of tease out the implications of that philosophy, or was it yeah, just... Yeah, because it, it, it did not have an answer for the issues of life and death. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, so I began to experiment with things like Zen Buddhism, Taoism, Transcendental mm -hmm. Meditation. So I was a, I was a seeker and mm -hmm. uh, found out that my wife went to church. I had no idea really what a Baptist church was like, which hmm. went. <laughs> and uh, I, my experience at church was pre-Vatican II, Roman Catholic, Latin mm -hmm. Mass, yep. Yep. Uh, what we, what some of us now call the smells and the bells. <laughs> and, yep. uh, yep. um, what a, what a shock to, to <laughs> go walk into this evangelical Baptist church where, where the gospel was being preached by a man named Bruce Woods. And, uh, I was converted, uh, six months later when, uh, I gave my life to Christ. What and, is, so wait, 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 so you went from that and then in six months. So what, what in the world happened in six months? I mean, well, I'm, I'm, I'm at university. I'm doing a BA in philosophy. Uh, that also was a bit okay. of, of my disenchantment with Marxism as a philosophical uh -huh. system because I, had, I took a course from a leading Marxist named Goldberg uh, on the University of Toronto campus. And he really 
I had all kinds of questions, and I remember asking them to. And he, I, I just felt here's a a, mar- a committed Marxist, a mm. Marxist philosopher. He just can't answer these questions. Huh. And also questions, then, like, questions I, like life and death questions, like metaphysical. Yeah. Yeah, and then also the problem with things like the proletariat, the dictatorship mm. of the proletariat. Yep. Yep. Uh, and uh, I, I had read George Orwell's Animal Farm years before, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Those, it's the sort, of, the sort of disenchantment that Orwell went through in the 1930s, that the reality, once you start to try to put the reality of communism or Marxism into practice, it, it just ends up as a dictatorship. Mm. Well, it, 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 as you've reflected on that, how, why, why does that happen? Because I think the heartbeat of communism is 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 an, a vision of egalitarianism mm-hmm. and uh, an equality all the way along the line. And the only way you're ever going to get that in a socioeconomic reality is the state is going to have to um, uh, seize the property yeah. of the wealthy and yeah. redistribute it. Redistribute it. In, in, in no essence, other way. Yeah, to, to, to be the superstructure under which everything else falls. But there has to be, because yeah, you can't have an equal, you can't have a utopia where those making the decisions are equal to everybody else. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, and I also discovered uh, existentialism as a philosophical system. I probably was a committed existentialist reading people like um, <clears throat> uh, Kierkegaard, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, but expect, particularly Martin Heidegger. And this was before, this is the early 70s, um, before Heidegger's association with the Nazi regime was really, really well known. And uh, Heidegger, in his book, uh, Being in Time, which is a classic uh, German existentialist work, argues that the only way to engage in authentic living was to regularly put your death uh, in, in, in your thoughts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm already struggling with the whole concept <laughs> of life and death. And this, yeah. is, this is kind of, in some ways it pushed me over the edge. Mm. And so mm. as I began to go to church, uh, one of the themes of, there were two themes, I think in uh, Bruce Woods's preaching. One was uh, the, the, the victorious work of the spirit. Mm. And the other was the risen Christ. Mm. And the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ became a, a very central feature uh, that I began to realize that here is one who has faced death, mm-hmm. has passed through death, and is alive. Mm. Mm. And uh, I can trust him. So I became a Christian in the spring of 1974. Um, within two or three days of my conversion, uh, I, I knew that I had to go to seminary to do theological training. Uh, at that point, thinking I was going to become a pastor or a missionary. But I've always loved history. Um, it was uh, apart from those years in my bachelor's when I was doing philosophy. And even then, it was the history of philosophy. But I would always wanted to be a historian. Mm-hmm. And so it's not surprising that God... Uh, uh, reinvigorated or rearticulated that longing to be a historian of whatever. Um, I mean, in my probably around uh, when I was in grade 12, I remember being asked by a friend, so what would you like to do if you went on to the PhD? Oh, yeah, be like the hist- history of rock music, you know, like uh, <laughs> Frank Zappa, Led Zeppelin, whatever. Yeah. And uh, so I've always loved history. 
And so it's not surprising to me now looking back. Uh, and I'm, I'm a firm believer that God in the providential working of God that somehow is meshed with our freedom. But uh, he, it was he who gave me these longings, uh, a love for history, um, a giftedness in that area. And uh, in his due course, he brought that to, uh, to life as a, as a church historian. So by second year of my master's of divinity, um, I had committed uh, to uh, going on to, into church history and then uh, stayed on at the University of Toronto, did a PhD, a THD in church history there. That's incredible. And, and even just to even consider the juxtaposition of you, you've got all this philosophical like longing and then the Lord uses of all people Heidegger to kind of push you further to in, in as, as opposed to like, okay, I, I can only, I have to hear an exposition of Romans, you know, one, two, three, four, I have to hear that. And that's good. But at the same time, how the Lord can use existentially your, your longings to say, I'm going to push on you a little further. You know, you, you almost get this sense of what Lewis talked about, you know, the, the hound of heaven, just kind of pursuing yep. you and, and all around you, you can't get out of this, this, this question of why am I here and what happens afterwards? Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's all. So make a pitch for why someone ought to study history or, but particularly church history. Um, you, you can see the threads within your own background, but make a pitch to somebody who's like, you know, I'm, I'm not really into dates and figures. So um, make that pitch to that person. Yeah, history is, I mean, dates and figures are like the skeleton of, of history. Um, the muscles and uh, ligaments, et cetera, internal organs and brain are the, the, the issues of why. Mm. why, why. What are the causes of events, et cetera? And um, uh, everybody has a history, their own personal history. Mm -hmm. When you join a church, you've, that church has a history. Where, where has that church come from? Why is it the way it is? Um, why do you believe what you do? What is it in their cult, your culture? So, um, if we don't understand the past, our own personal past, our church's past, our community's past, we really are at a loss to know who we are. Mm. You mean right now in, yeah. in space and time? Yeah. We, we, uh, the, the, the past helps to inform who we are. So when a person loses their memory, mm. Mm. they can't function. Yeah, even just very practically speaking, somebody with Alzheimer's or you know, dementia. Exactly. Yeah. And when a church does that, so I, 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 there are evangelical churches in North America that basically have the equivalent of Alzheimer's. Hmm. Well, how, how is that? Well, they've cut off, they've cut off connection with their past. They, they if you ask anybody in those churches, oh, so who's Luther, Calvin, Edwards? Hmm. Uh, okay. They have no idea who they are. They don't sing ever the the hymns. That, that's probably the, the, the closest connection that we have with the past mm -hmm. is the hymnody of the past. And I'm not, I'm not here arguing for exclusive hymnody. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm arguing for is that along with the, the, the best of what is current and recent, we also sing those, those works that have stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Isaac Watts's um, uh, Alas, Did My Savior Bleed, uh, Charles, mm -hmm. Charles Wesley, <clears throat> and Can It Be? Um, <clears throat> so, uh, knowing history helps us understand who we are, where we are at the present in time. Mm -hmm. It builds humility. Hmm. 
humility is critical. We, we talked a little bit about this earlier. It's critical yeah. for the Christian life. Hmm. Uh, because how, how does it build realize, humility? How, how does it start, build humility? You start to realize how much you owe to others who have gone before you. Jesus says that, John 4. Hmm. Others have labored. You've entered into their labors. You should know who, who founded your church. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Mm. Uh, uh, you, you're, you're to know those who've preached the word of God to you, and you're to imitate their faith. Mm. Mm. How can you imitate the faith of those who've gone before if you don't know anything about them? And then mm. God, takes it, God takes history really seriously. <laughs> most, most of the Bible's history. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So history then is vital. Um, and by refusing to engage with the history of the church, we're basically, it's a species of worldliness. Our culture is not really interested in history as a vehicle of wisdom. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, they'll, they'll watch Russell Crowe in Gladiator, you know, or a Jane Austen movie, which I, I mean, I love both of those. But they're, 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 you're not hearing the voices of the past. You're hearing, you're hearing a modern rendition. Mm. And invariably... So, you know, in Gladiator, at the end of the movie, when uh, Russell Crowe's Maximus is, is dying, um, and uh, there are a couple of speeches made afterwards about, you know, he wanted to restore the Republic. Well, uh, <laughs> th th this is 180 AD during the reign, uh, just after the reign of, of Marcus Aurelius. Nobody's wanting to restore the Republic. <laughs> it's, just, it's, a, it's, it's an American version yeah. of uh, what we tend to think everybody wants, some sort of liberal democracy. But, <laughs> The Romans in the late second century are not wanting to restore liberal democracy. I mean, it's a good movie. There are parts of it where the, the historical accuracy is awesome. But there are other parts of it, you're just hearing um, early 21st century voices. Mm. I mean, the classic example is of some of um, oh, the Australian actor who did Braveheart and uh, the Patriots. Yeah, Mel Gibson. I mean, <laughs> I mean Brave, uh, uh, Braveheart, oh man, it, it is so historically inaccurate it's a movie but man it is okay. the patriots even worse. Well, he did so much research on that one yeah right i'm sure he did <laughs> anyway all that to say is uh we, we need to study the past by the voices of the past mm -hmm. and um they they build into us humility they help us orient where we're where we've come from and they also liberate us from the present because the past, as somebody has said, is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Mm. And you suddenly realize, here are Christians who share my faith, mm. but they also believe this, yeah. which I don't Same believe. Thing. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. 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 They share my faith, but they believe something else. So ah, they, yeah. Yeah. the classic example is Spurgeon and his smoking cigars and the, the sermon that he, he gave, well, the, the statement he made publicly that he was going to go home that, that, that Sunday afternoon and smoke a cigar to the glory of God. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not into smoking cigars, but you suddenly realize that's, it's a different world. They, mm. you know, uh, mm. or Robert Hall Jr. When uh, he had a nervous breakdown after, uh, during his pulpit ministry and the doctor told him that, that you got to do two things to cure it. Number one, you got to get married. <laughs> Which he did. He went out right and married his housekeeper. His housekeeper? Yeah, his housekeeper. And then number two, uh, and they had a great marriage. And number two, he took up smoking. The doctor said, "Number, no, that's the, that's the second thing. Got to take up smoking cigarettes." Yeah. <laughs> and he took up smoking. He never had another nervous breakdown. Uh, <laughs> this is a very different world. Yeah. And those yeah. are 
those are silly little examples. Yeah. But yeah. What, they do, what the past forces us mm. to realize is maybe my beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Are not as huh. basic and classic as I thought they were. Yeah. Yeah, and that and that is in a in a cyclical way breeds humility. That somebody I can read a sermon by Spurgeon and be affected in such a way, and say, okay, yeah, I'm I'm a little different on this, but God used used him tremendously to to affect my my own life. So, exactly. Yeah. What are um, if somebody is interested that, that you've made the pitch and they want to buy, uh, I mean, what wh- where would they start with with church history to to kind of stoke stoke some fire in that well i mean there's there's a lot of good examples other than the andrew fuller center well sorry (laughs) other than the andrew fuller center yeah yeah yeah. there's a lot of good examples uh biographies are a great way to get into history the lives of somebody um ian murray's life of jonathan edwards for example uh Uh, ray rhodes's recent life of susanna spurgeon susie Mm. is uh done phenomenally well Mm. um those sorts of things. Um, uh, Karen Swallow Pryor's life of Hannah Moore. Mm. Um, and these, these are just great ways into to, to the past where you kind of walk with somebody in their life. Um, Jeremy Jackson, it's a one volume popular history, came out in the 1980s. It's no longer in print called No Other Foundation. It's just a very nice overview of 2000 years. It's about 250 pages. Um, Sinclair Ferguson recently has a small book published by either the Banner of Truth or Reformation Heritage books on, uh, every chapter is a century of church history. There's 20 mm-hmm. chapters. Uh, so the first, second, third centuries, etc., have chapter one, two, three. And he just, he does an overview of the century, uh, gives some key highlights and then ends with either a prayer or a hymn from the century mm-hmm. that you can use devotionally. So there's a, there is a lot of tools, um, especially now for children. Um, and then there's biographies, uh, uh, you know, like uh, the ones I was involved in, uh, published by Evangelical Press, uh, a series of biographies I edited uh, on. Um, uh, I was the general editor, but there were individual authors, uh, people like uh, Athanasius, Augustine, uh, Hugh Latimer, Amy Carmichael, and Lexham Press. Uh, is in, is now bringing out all, another series called Live Theology. Okay. And we're, we're doing the same there. The first two will be, one will be on Abraham Kuyper. Okay. I'm the general editor. Uh, and they, we have a person who's done that. And I'm I, my biography of Samuel Pierce, a friend of William Carey, and Andrew Fuller is going to be in that. And they're about 100 pages. And uh, mine is uh, Loving God and Neighbor with Andrew, uh, with uh, Samuel Pierce. And... Um, They'll have, they'll have the idea of a, of a theme that will run through the biography. And so there's some tremendous resources today that, um, that are available for those who are interested in church history. Would that be because you also um, head up biblical spirituality at Southern? I mean, is that obviously is, is one step into that, that direction of like enhancing biblical spirituality? Um, are there other books that you would suggest or even before that, like, what is what is your role in like what is biblical spirituality like what 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 does that mean that you yeah head I don't up? I don't head up biblical spirituality the head there is uh, Don Donald Whitney Doctor okay. Don Whitney okay um, my involvement at this point because we've hired two other people now since your graduation in, from Southern uh, Joe Harrod and oh, yeah. Stephen Yule 
are okay. both now involved in doing spiritual uh, uh, spirituality. So okay. I'm um, I, I teach two courses there, both PhD, one on uh, patristic early church and one on evangelical. And uh, biblical spirituality is spirituality that uh, is uh, shaped uh, by the scriptures. Okay. As so, I mean, spirituality to... is well, it's become a buzzword in our society today. So I was at a bookstore the other day and uh, got chatting with a woman behind the counter who was uh, serving me in terms of uh, when I was buying my the books I was buying, and uh, somehow spirituality came up and. She was some sort of eclectic um, Buddhist, but who kind of liked okay. elements of Christianity. Yeah. And uh, what I came away from was the realization that a lot of people in our culture, they're interested in spirituality, but it's, it's kind of do it yourself. Mm -hmm. So I'll have, a, I'll have a, a Buddha statue. Yeah. I'll, I'll have incense as a Taoist might. And then I, I, I kind of like Jesus, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. That's kind of cool. Love mm -hmm. your neighbor. Yeah. Um, hmm. And um, biblical spirituality, as we teach it at the seminary, is set, uh, is a spirituality that is shaped by the Word of God. Do you think that that is is the greatest threat, if you would, to the church, or or is there some other greater threat, Nam namely with all of the uh, pluralism and the postmodernity that's 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 in our culture that being able to say no there's an exclusivity to Jesus or or would you see that there is a a greater threat to the church that we need to be on watch for and how we can remedy that um because of the global nature of christianity it's difficult to say that there is one threat mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. so i think we almost have to talk about what is the greatest challenge to the church in north america yeah, yeah. in europe Africa, Asia, uh, in North America, where this podcast will probably be mostly seen and viewed, uh, I think the the the, the greater, two of the greatest challenges sort of to, to modify that a little. Yeah. One yeah. is 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 this kind of do-it-yourself spirituality. Okay. This, this eclecticism. It's fit. It fits very much into American culture mm -hmm. with its individualistic strain, its pragmatism. Uh, yeah, I can I, I, I can build together. Uh, my own spirituality, which ignores the traditions of the past. Mm. Mm. So the lack of understanding history plays a role in here too. Yeah. The other great challenge for us is Islam. Mm. I, I don't think it's secularism. Mm. And uh, I think I, I see people in our in the West moving in two directions. One is um, the whole area of do-it-yourself spirituality, which ranges all over the map. And the other, it's not just, it's not outright atheism and the secularism that historically has been a challenge in the 20th century. And the other is just the rise of Islam. Mm. And uh, I think as, I, I think as evangelical Christians living in America, where Islam has been portrayed as a, uh, we, we've seen it through the eyes of fundamentalist uh, terrorism. Mm. And we have a fear of it, and uh, we need to engage it theologically. We need mm -hmm. to engage it uh, on a personal level. Uh, we have fabulous opportunities now that Muslims have come to the West. Uh, I think there is a fear uh, about you know letting them in. Mm. Uh, the reality is we're living in one of the greatest, biggest generations of uh, migration 
of large numbers of people. And I think we need to see this as an opportunity without, without losing sight of the fact that I think nation, sovereign nations have a right to control their borders. Nonetheless, we, we should not live in terror mm-hmm. of, of Muslims. Mm-hmm. And we should see it. These, these are men and women who need the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And they can be converted. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my conversion, your conversion, was mm-hmm. as difficult or as easy for God as the conversion of a hardcore fundamentalist Muslim. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, thank you so much. I want to honor your time. I know that you're extremely busy, so I'm so thankful to be able to see your face again, to be able to talk again. Likewise. And uh, I look forward to doing a follow-up time, talk about the things that I've written down here that uh, I definitely want to revisit with you at another time. But let me, let me close this in prayer and, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll end our time together. Heavenly Father, you have been so kind to us to give us these few moments together. And we do pray that you would use not only Michael's testimony of how he came to faith, but also his great love for our brothers and sisters who have gone before us and how that can produce in us humility, the humility that we talked about throughout the podcast, but then also a deep and abiding affection for you and how you save men and women from so many backgrounds, that you indeed are the Lord over all. And we acknowledge that you are the king of creation and that we uh, simply want you to be honored in what we've said today. And we pray that uh, for those that are hearing, that they would continue to dive deep into the history of, of your redemption of your people. Uh, and we pray that we would be able to, to see the fruit of, of this podcast uh, as, as others listen and are challenged to grow in their love for you, their love for your work to redeem men and women for yourself. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Thank you, Matt. That was Thank lovely. You. Thank you so much.